Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this series, and honestly, personally, that I could be part of teaching this series for a few reasons. Um, it's obviously a, I'll say near and dear for me personally, uh, as a Chinese-American. Not sure if you have noticed. Um, as I said, I'm one of the pastors here, so we didn't just get a random brown guy up here during the series to teach this. Um, so I was born where a lot of uh, Asians are born, uh, Los Angeles. <clears throat> uh, earlier this year, or earlier last year, excuse me, earlier last year, uh, the neighbor at my old house uh, during this, the whole Safe Ride Home lockdown came up to me uh, while I was playing in the yard with my son and asked me the question, why did your people brought the coronavirus over? I mean, that's a slightly offensive question, you know, and this, and while I'm in this weird conversation, in the back of my mind the whole time I'm thinking, the good people of LA did not do this. Like, we, we gave the world a lot of weird things like avocado toast, but, but not COVID, not, not the vid. Don't, don't put that on us, man. Um, all that being said, I, I'm very glad to be here on week three of our series, Precious in His Sight. So if you missed the first two weeks, I kind of want to walk us through it a little bit, catch us up real quick, because what we're talking about today is built upon the first two weeks. So week one, Kent kind of took us a tour through the entire scriptures, talking about the concept, the nations. When the Bible talks about the nations, it's not talking about just plots of land or political countries on a map. When God talks about the nations, he's talking about the word ethnicity, people groups. And it's God's desire that his family is to be made of, of all nations, of all ethnicities, and all of them are made in his image. In week two, Marcus walked us through the idea of oppression, that he built, he helped us frame the concept of oppression. It's actually a, a theme and, and there's a, a foundation of belief throughout scripture and how God is always for the side of the people that are being oppressed. He is a defender of the oppressed. And through that lens, Marcus walk us through our broken history of our country and help us see the experiences of a lot of black Americans fits into the biblical category of oppression. That black Americans have bare minimum faced moderate to severe oppression. And we also talk about, obviously, Black Americans are not the only groups of people that have been oppressed in our country's history, but we bare minimum need to at least acknowledge that reality. And Marcus ended the sermon talking about that we, as God's family, of one family, we're called to mourn alongside of our black brothers and sisters. And this week, I kind of want to pick up where Marcus left off. Marcus established and helped us see through scriptures that God is the defender of the oppressed and that we, as his people, we are also called to be the defenders of the oppressed. And you might think to yourself and say, look, I, I really do hate of all that has happened to black Americans. I really do. But why is it my responsibility to do something about this? I didn't personally own slaves. I personally didn't vote racial bias policies. I didn't do any of that. Why is it my responsibility when I did not why, when I didn't directly contribute to the problem. 
Today I want to speak a little bit of, into that through the Bible. And a lot of the answer has to do with the idea of justice. Now, justice, unfortunately, is another one of those words that has been colored and co-opted by the back and forth politics of our day. The left sometimes use the word justice as a catch-all word to talk about anything and everything they think should or should not be done. And then the right will use a term like social justice warriors to insult and write off anything they think is too woke or politically correct. But before justice was ever a talking point for the left and the right, it is a deeply, profoundly biblical idea. One time I was grabbing lunch with a new person that's kind of interested in getting to know our church family. I'm just going to call him Bob. Um, and at one point of the conversation, the word justice came up. And Bob, I can tell that he is visibly uncomfortable. And as an Enneagram aide who just loves to challenge things, I just looked at Bob in his eye right into his soul and says, hey, man, you are visibly distressed. Are you okay? <laughs> Bob <laughs> then proceeded to tell me, when he is very concerned that we as a, as a church care about justice because in his eyes, our church falls more in line with the political left because we care about the concept and issues of justice. As far as the God, I think we need a better way forward in thinking and talking about justice because justice is first and foremost belongs to God and not to any political party. We need a foundation on why we need to care about justice other than political rhetoric or the concept of it's just the right thing to do. We need something better than that. We need to see justice through the lens of our Heavenly Father who created everything and that he is heartbroken, he is angry at the things that's wrecking chaos and pain in his creation. I want us to dive into some of that today. I want to see if we can resituate the idea of justice and put it back in its proper biblical framework. Because like I said, the word and the concept is deeply, profoundly biblical. And understanding that is absolutely essential in our pursuit of racial justice and honestly any justice issue. We have to start from this framework first and anything related to justice. So to do that, I want to start up looking at one verse in Micah chapter 6. Here's what it says in verse 8. He has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Countless scholars have pointed out that this verse is a great summary of how God wants his people to live in the world. And I know a lot of people here at City Church are considering following Jesus, or have been recently begun following Jesus. If that's you and you're looking for a summary of where to start in regards to the Christian life, this is a pretty good passage to reference. It says that as God's people, we are to do justice, to love kindness, and another for that would be mercy, and walk humbly with God. Now, it's probably helpful to think those as less as a list of three things we're called to do, or three separate things, more as three ways of saying the same thing. In other words, knowing God of the Bible means walk humbly with them, which itself encompasses loving kindness, and doing justice. Knowing God of the Bible means walking humbly with him, and that in itself encompasses loving kindness and doing justice. That's what it means to have a relationship with God. It looks like your life reflecting that truth. Now, the word justice 
in this passage in its original language is the word mishpat. Can you guys say mishpat? Nailed it. The most basic meaning of the word is to treat people equitably. And, that, and that's the idea that in week one that Kent's talking about that each of us are made in the image of God or the imago Dei if you prefer Latin. And because of that, because of the fact that we're made in the image of God, we all of us have inherent worth and value no matter what, no matter where you come from. So Mishpat is treating people rightly in light of the Imago Dei. Mishpat also refers to just as much like how we think about it today, seeing to that people are punished for committing crime, and we love that as a, as a country. I mean, we have a billion shows like Law and Order SVU, Law, it's just an like, infinite amount of those. And it's just seen to that people who do wrong don't get away with it. But justice also means giving people their rights. In summary, justice is giving people what they are due, whether that is appropriate punishment or appropriate protection, care, and provision. That's what mishpat, what justice means in the Bible, giving people what they are due. And can I make an observation? Ask the guy with a microphone, with the loudspeakers. Generally speaking, the political right really gets and insists on giving people the punishment they are due. And then the left really gets and insists on giving people the protection and care they are due. But each of them struggle mightily doing both. And the Bible says we are called to do both. And this word mishpat in its various forms is used over 200 times in the Old Testament alone. I mean, that's quite a theme. And knowing that doing justice is not optional in Micah 6. Look at what it says. It doesn't say that knowing God is what's important. And if you have extra time, energy, or money, go do some justice. It does not say when you're walking, if you want to, walk, if you want to have a relationship with God, it does not say that if you also happen to be more left-leaning politically, also go do some justice. It says that walking humbly with God necessarily includes loving kindness and doing justice. And when you trace the idea of mishpat and, or justice through the Bible, you'll, you'll see it, it gets most often brought up in the context of four people groups. The widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. Consistently and constantly, the Bible has called God's people to ensure that those quartet of people are cared for, provided for, defended, and stood up for. Now, why does the Bible put that much focus on that group of people? Simply put, it's because those people were the most vulnerable to oppression in the ancient world. Because of their status, there were groups of people that are often taken advantage of, looked over, mistreated, and quite frankly, people who, who mistreat them often could get away with it. And Marcus mentioned last week, it's still quite similar today. Often the oppression and mistreatment of certain people groups continue because there are very few consequences and force for people doing just that oppression. And remember from just a second ago, justice is both appropriate punishment and appropriate protection. So it shouldn't be surprised to us when there is not appropriate punishment for the guilty, there's a lack of protection and care for the oppressed. There are often two sides of the same coin. And all of this is why the, the God of the Bible calls his people to do justice in regards to those groups of people. And what's interesting, when God's people neglect to care for those vulnerable people groups, 
It's not called a lack of compassion or neglect. It's called injustice. Look at me what New York pastor and author Tim Keller says about this. The mishpat or justness of a society, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats these people, the group that we just mentioned, the widow, the poor, the orphan, and the foreigner. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet is not called merely a lack of mercy or charity, but a violation of justice of mishpat. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. That is what it means to do justice. In my experience as a pastor, a lot of proclaimed followers of Jesus have not been exposed to the theme of justice and doing justice in the Bible. And generally, as soon as someone starts putting forward these ideas, a lot of Christians will reject what they're saying with Christ and Marxism or socialism because they simply aren't familiar with the teaching of justice when we, when, we find, when we look into the Bible. The theme of justice continues from the Old Testament into the New if you follow Jesus' ministry and the gospel, you'll find that he has a natural inclination towards the poor, the outcast, the excluded. He holds them up as examples of faith over and over again. He gravitates towards them in large crowds and shows them extra measure and care and attention. He rails against those who mistreat and overlook um, this, these people groups. In the Gospel of Luke, specifically, the very first public words out of Jesus' mouth when he is announcing the start of his earthly ministry go like this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the theme of mishpat or justice is throughout the scriptures and it's something God cares deeply, deeply about. And today we're going to look at a passage that I think a lot of us might be familiar with. Turn with me to Luke 10, Luke chapter 10. In this passage, Jesus does not explicitly use the word justice, but the theme of justice is all over it. So I want us to consider this story and see what we can glean from it in terms of how we approach justice as followers of Jesus. Now, for context, this passage, Jesus is telling a story in response to a question that someone asks him. A teacher of the Old Testament law approaches Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the teacher of the law for what does it look like for me to have a relationship with God? And Jesus responds to that question with a question of his own. What is written in the law? In other words, Jesus is saying, you're the expert guy. What does it say? The teacher of the law says it means loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, nailed it. Go do it. That's a paraphrase. <laughs> but then he asked Jesus a follow-up question. Who is my neighbor? The guy's incredibly smart. He understands there's no way around the whole loving God and loving your neighbor thing. So then he asks the question, then, okay, then who is my neighbor exactly? Who do I have to love? And more importantly, who don't I need to love? He wants Jesus to give him a pass on loving some people. Instead, Jesus tells him a story. And this story is a way of explaining what loving your neighbor truly looks like. 
This is the story that many of us know as a story of the good Samaritan. So let's walk through it together, and we'll point out some things as we go along, starting verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, just one verse into the story, Jesus' audience would have already have a very concrete image and picture in their head of the situation. A man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho is most likely to be a Jewish man because this particular route is, and this particular is known for to be incredibly dangerous and treacherous. There were these so-called highway men along the route that notoriously do exactly what Jesus says they will do, robbing people, stealing everything they have, including their clothes, and beating them senseless. So this is a very realistic hypothetical situation for the people listening. And if they're Jewish and if they ever travel that road, this is a very good chance that this is something that could happen to them. And with that established, Jesus continues in verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest and a Levite both would have been expected to stop and help the injured man because they would have seen him as a brother in the faith. But they don't. They pass by on the other side, leaving him there in pain. And this happened in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. To understand the provocative nature of what Jesus is saying, you need to understand the relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people at the time. It would have been hard to describe a relationship that's filled with more animosity and bad blood than the one between the Jews and the Samaritans. Much of it was racial in nature. Some of it was historical in nature. But these two groups of people did not get along at all. And the temptation is to kind of to put, when we think about this in modern day terms, the temptation is to put that into two people groups that we mildly dislike each other, like, say, Alabama fans in the Vols. And so this is not a story of an Alabama, like, walk, uh, Alabama fan walking down Keystone Pike and then got beat up, and then a Vols fan comes and see him and then shows compassion to him. That's not what the story is. Even though personally, I don't exactly like Alabama fans because I feel justly, I feel righteous and just justified to dislike you due to how great your program is doing. <laughs> I have every right to be envious and jealous, and I'm just asking you to roll your tide somewhere else. <laughs> now, my, I'm going to attempt to kind of bring this story to honesty more into our modern-day context. Imagine if today Jesus was telling the story to a well-known, hyper-conservative politician who thinks that woke leftists are trying to ruin our country. And the story might go that he, this politician, were on a trip to go see his supporters, and then he was robbed and beaten and left for dead. And while he was lying there, a well-known conservative traveling evangelist comes by, sees him, and moves on. And then a MAGA hat-wearing Trump supporter comes by, sees him, and then moves on. But then a Black Lives Matter protester on his way home from the latest rally with a protest sign still in hand sees this politician, stops, and had compassion on him and comes to help. Look, or you can substitute the two people if you want. Let's say it's the BOM protester who is lying on the side of the road and the only person who stops to help is a MAGA hat-wearing, Trump-flag-waving conservative. 
Or it could be a neo-Nazi who was covered from head to toe swastika tattoos, and the only person to stop to look and have compassion on him is a Jewish rabbi. Are you starting to feel uncomfortable yet? Because this is much closer to what the original audience was feeling as Jesus tells the story. Sub in whatever two people groups you want, but you got to feel how uncomfortable this story would have been to Jesus' audience as he told it. Their blood pressure would be steadily increasing as he talked about it. Now, just for clarity, I'm not saying this story is the same as what Jesus is saying here. There are differences. But I'm just saying do not miss the effect what Jesus is trying to do on Luke 10. It would have created the same polarizing response in his audience as one would have here today. Because it unapologetically bursts open some pre, excuse me, it bursts open some preconceived categories that people have in their minds. This is why Jesus is such an effective teacher and brilliant storyteller. This man who culturally speaking would have been the least likely to help the man in need is the one who had compassion on him. Now let's keep reading about the lengths the Samaritan goes to help in verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he stops, has compassion on the man lying by the side of the road, and he provided care for the, for the man's injuries and takes him to an inn, which is a sort of a hospital today, and pays for the man to stay there until he's, he has fully recovered and offers to foot any additional expense incurred. This would have been a substantial expense back then. This man, the Samaritan, who was most likely consistently vocally hated and opposed by the Jewish man, by the side of the road, goes out of his way to care for him. Keep in mind, the Samaritan had nothing to do with a man's injuries. He did not cause the problem in the least. And yet he sees it to himself that to right the wrongs that has happened at his own expense. Jesus draws the story to a close and asks the man he told the story to this, to this question, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which of these three men, the priest, the Levi, the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man by the side of the road? Which do you think embodies the obedience of the law? Who do you really think embodies a type of life that God wants from his people? In verse 37, he said, the one who's shown mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus tells a Jewish man who is an expert of the law in the Old Testament, go and be like the Samaritan, like the person he hated and despised, the person he thought embodied everything about how not to live a life that glorified God. He is now forced in the context of the story, go and imitate that man. Now with all that unpacked, there's a lot I think we can talk about today. We could dig further into the racial implication of all this, how Jesus intentionally forced his audience to reckon their racial biases and ethnic superiority. How he was forcing them to see the Imago Dei in someone that they were inclined to not see. And that would be a worthy discussion. But here's the one thing I want to home in on for today. I want us to notice when Jesus talks about what love, what does it really mean? To Jesus, love is not 
what some of us think today, just being pleasant to people. If you stop an average person at a coffee shop here in town and ask them, what is wrong with the world, there's at least a 75% chance they're going to respond with, we just need to love more, man. We just need to stop hating people so much, man. We just need to love. And honestly, I don't, I don't think I'll disagree with that statement. I think I'll disagree on the definition of love when I talk about it. Because generally what they mean by it is we should all just be more pleasant towards one another. We should just be nice. Just try not to hate people and smile at them when you see them. And that's it. But notice that's not how Jesus defines love here. He defines love as going out of your way to right a wrong that someone else incurred at great cost to yourself. Can we agree at least that's a different level than just being pleasant to people? The man in the story who embodies the love is the man who encounters a wrong he did not cause. He chooses to make it his responsibility anyways, to take something that was not his fault and make it his responsibility. Now, here's where this connects to everything we've been talking about so far this morning. Because this all means apparently Jesus being a person who loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself means being a person who does justice. Because do you remember from earlier, doing justice means you take responsibility for righting wrongs even when you did not cause that wrong. It means seeing that people are treated equitably, whether or not it was your fault in the first place. And here in this story, Jesus affirms that and give us a vivid example of what that looks like. The man who loved his neighbor was the Samaritan who righted a wrong he did not cause. And that's what it means to do justice. And that's what it means to love your neighbor as God has commanded us. Here's the craziest thing about all of this for me. We don't necessarily even need a story like the Good Samaritan or an Old Testament law understanding of justice to be motivated to live like this. The most obvious reason that followers of Jesus should be inspired to, do, to right wrongs they did not cause is because that's precisely what Jesus did for us, for you, and for me. That's the message of the gospel, that Jesus righted wrongs that he did not cause. The sin in our hearts was not his fault. The sin in this world was not his fault. And yet he saw it as his responsibility to do something about it. That's the basic foundation of our faith. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took personal responsibility for something that was not his fault. And when we began to see Jesus was the good Samaritan, that he sought our good at his own expense. In fact, it cost him everything. When we see the world through that lens, it's going to motivate us to do the same. For some of us, this series has been so difficult for you so far because you do not understand why are we spending so much time talking about this? Why are we harping on this topic? For some of us, we already feel like we care about justice issues or racial injustice, but you do not know why you should care about it other than it feels like the right thing to do. For both of those crowds, for all of us, I think we need to hear and be reminded of this reality The reason that you are a beloved son, the reason you're a beloved daughter of God is because God himself took it upon his shoulders to make a way for you. He saw saw your brokenness, your shame, your guilt, and he came for you because he absolutely loves and adores you. So the mentality of this is not my fault 
this is not my responsibility, starts to fly against the very best news of your life. That God loves you so much that he saw it his responsibility to make things right between you and him. I mean, that's the best news that any of us can hope for. And that's our motivation to do justice. I realize that we have at times been politically discipled out of thinking of thinking justice in those terms, but that's what we're talking about here. And that God is calling all of us to embody that good news to the world around us. That's why we should be motivated to do something about oppression and its effect in our world. And honestly, it does not matter, matter whether or not it's our fault. Whether or not the oppression and justice was your fault, it doesn't matter because it is still our responsibility to do something about it. That was Jesus' posture towards us, and that is to be our, Jesus, our posture towards others. Let me put it this way. Can I tell you something I've noticed as an observer of racial tensions in our country? Here's what I've noticed. Generally among white people, there seems to be a lack of awareness towards racial injustice and sometimes a lack of desire to do anything about it. And in response, there's often a pushback from black people where they have said, well, white people, this is all your fault. It is your fault that racism is there. Therefore, you need to do something about it. And on some level, I get where that's coming from. Some white people are personally guilty of injustice. And it's easy to feel that if we don't make all white people feel that guilt and responsibility, we won't be able to motivate them to do anything about it. So we feel like we need to keep shame and guilt to, in order to motivate them to do something about injustice, in order to motivate them into action. That's understandable, and I get it. Shame and guilt is a powerful motivator. But can I suggest something different? As with any aspect of life, shame and guilt can only motivate people for so long. Guilt can only motivate people so much. At some point, you're just going to be over it. You're going to give up. You're going to be bitter because you realize no matter how much you do, it will never be enough. And in the off chance you bought into the belief that you've done enough, you're going to carry a posture of arrogance that pushes other people away from justice instead of inviting them into it. Because you're going to constantly look down your nose at them. In order to motivate something lasting that will sustain change and effort, you need something more powerful than guilt and shame. You need the good news of Jesus. You need the message of the scriptures, and the scripture teaches this, that whether or not injustice was your fault, if you're a follower of Jesus, it is your responsibility. That's why we are called to approach approach justice in the same way, because that's how Jesus approached us. The goal is not for the white folks in our church family to feel guilty or ashamed. The goal is for all of us to see the brokenness of our country through the lens of the Bible. So that's why we care about justice. That's why we spend this morning talking about justice. That's why we, so far in this series, are trying to help us understand everything that's happened in our country. So this next part, I want to leave us some sort of an application today, in particular, in, um, in particular kind of focusing on racial injustice, some application even for the past last three weeks. So when we're talking about just racial injustice, I think we're talking about three categories here. And here's some action steps for them. It's learning, lamenting, and living. The first is we need to be educating ourselves in regards to racial injustice. That's the learning piece. 
So much of the time, I think the reason people end up being unhelpful in their pursuit of justice is because they act without first understanding. We need to first learn. I think this, has, this actually has two elements to it. One is simply understanding and learning about the experiences of people of color in our country. If you have black friends, and by that, I mean actual friends, not just people you call black friends because you had a conversation one time. If you have black friends, listen well for them to share their experiences. If you don't have black friends, here's what I'll tell you. You live in an unbelievable time in human history. Because right now, if you Google the experiences of black people in America, you're going to get thousands upon thousands upon thousands of articles, blogs, and paper on telling you just that. You can buy books at a click of a button. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. There's this website called Amazon.com. You can buy books and it'll show up on your doorsteps in two days. It's like basically real magic. <laughs> and there are countless books that can help you understand the experience of people of color in our country. There are podcasts, there are shows. There are literally so many options you can learn about the experiences of people of color. And the second part to learning is educate ourselves on how the Bible speaks to those experiences. That's much of what we've been trying to do in the series taking situations and experiences in our world and helping us have a biblical language and categories for them. The Imago Dei, the nations, oppression, justice. All these are biblical categories to help us know how to think about and how to approach current situations and experiences in our world. So in a couple different ways, learn about justice. The second thing is lament. And we talked about this last week. Once we begin to understand the experiences of people of color, we both now, both now and throughout our history, we as followers of Jesus are called to lament those realities, spending time grieving the effects of sin on our world, all sin. But specifically for our purpose, sin in the form of racism and racial injustice. We lament because they're brothers and sisters in the family of God who are right now mourning and grieving and hurting. And we lament because all of us are in one God's family. When there's another shooting of an unarmed black man happens and you're close to people of color in your life, reach out to them and let them know you're thinking about them and that you hate it too. Don't require them to respond. Don't expect them to respond. Just lament with them as you lament with God. Spending time actually processing the injustice you see. Try doing that before you get angry. Try doing that before you take action or post things on Instagram. Grieve and ask God what he would have you do. And then third, live. This is where the rubber hits the road. Take practical steps to push back against, against undo, and then start undo the, the chains of injustice. Speak up, advocate, vote, care, be helpful. And I'm going to leave it here because next week we're going to get a lot more practical on this concept. But let your emotions and desire push you into action. And when sing together, the process looks a lot like this. The goal is that this will be a perpetual process of learning, lamenting, living out a pursuit of justice that will endure over the long haul. It's not a step-by-step -step process. It's not do these three things once and I'm done. It's a continual process of all three as we strive towards God's vision for our world together. Next week, my good friend Anthony, he's going to spend some time talking more about this and what does it look like to live this out. But this week, I don't want us to miss out why we should care about justice. This is all motivated by learning what Jesus did first for us. And now he's calling us to do the same.
for our neighbors. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are a good, good Savior. When you saw us in our sin, when, when you saw us in our rebellion, your response was, let them figure out. This is not my responsibility. Your response is, I'm coming after you, and I'm going to lay my life down for you. We don't deserve that, and yet that's what you offer to us. So Jesus, thank you. That's how you love us, and it's beautiful. Um, and Father, I just ask that through your spirit, would you help that beautiful truth sink deep into our souls so when we begin to understand that we see the world around us and we see all different type of injustice happening around us, would you let that truth motivate us into action? Would you guard us against feeling guilty and ashamed or push, would you guard us against pride and arrogance? Would you help us first see that you love us and you came for us and you laid your life down for us when it was not your fault? And out of that, you are inviting us to reflect that to the Lord around us. Would you grow this humble confidence in us? Father, we mourn and lament what is broken in our world the racial injustice, but all injustice and sin that's wrecking your beautiful creation. We lament over that. And we ask your spirit to move in us. I love you. And we ask all of this for our good and for your glory. Amen.